This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Webbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, still getting messages about Noam Chomsky. Don't forget you can listen to the radio show live Monday to Friday, 10 to 1, on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or on the Times Radio app. Right, coming up, we've got the latest Times Radio focus group, uh, James Johnson, in the hot seat. This time, with voters in Scotland. SNP voters, they voted SNP in the general election in 2019. They now say they're undecided. You could argue they're exactly the sort of people that Keir Starmer needs to try and win over if he's going to win a majority at the next election. Really genuinely fascinated their views on Hamza Yousaf, Nicola Sturgeon, Keir Starmer, Richie Sunak, and much else besides. Genuinely, really fascinating session coming up in just a moment. But first, as ever, we kick off with our columnists. And on a Thursday, it's... Manveen Rana and someone called Matthew on Times Radio. Yes, let me say a very good morning to Stories of Our Times presenter, Manveen Rana. Morning, Manveen. Hello. And this week's Matthew and the ever... <laughs> in the carousel of Matthews that just come passing by is music journalist Matthew Charlton. Morning, Matthew. Good morning. Are we allowed to call you Matthew yet, or are you still sticking with Matt? I'm only Matthew when I've done something wrong, Matt. Well, we'll find out. We'll find out. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's, it's still give, time. let's give it the next 20 minutes. There's yeah. still time. Right, uh, let's turn on to a big announcement today, policy announcement today, uh, on gambling. The government announcing... Well, actually, the criticism is that they're announcing lots of um, consultations on things rather than actually uh, doing anything. Culture Secretary uh, Lucy Fraser writing in the Times today saying, we live in a freedom-loving democracy where for the overwhelming majority of adults, betting is a bit of fun and it doesn't come with ruinous consequences. Before going on to say they are going to take action in some areas. Is she getting that balance right, do you think, Manfred? Uh, no. You know, as, as you said, I think a lot of people are really alarmed that this is only a consultation because, you know, anyone who's covered Westminster will know that this has been going on for years. I mean, you know, we had that moment when Tracy Crouch resigned because the government under Theresa May wasn't going far enough. They finally had to do a U-turn and bring forward some of the, you know, some of the new laws on fixed odds betting terminals, which they called like the crack cocaine. They knew they were ruining lives. And they finally put this limit of two pounds on them. This is weirdly, it's taken two years for them to catch up with the online version, which is one of the big proposals in this. And even then, even though they've already decided it's a terrible thing that's ruining lives and two pounds should be the cap, it's only opening up to consultation now and they're already raising the figure. They're raising the cap. So I can't understand 
why it's so inconsistent and why it's taken so long uh, and why it's still just a consultation. Yeah, so one of the things they're consulting on is a, is a, nas- is a mandatory levy on the industry, uh, potentially forcing large companies to pay 1% of any profits, which would then be used for, to fund NHS treatment for people who are addicted. Um, but given that we've heard about the number of, I mean, this number of centres alone dedicated to treat people with gambling addiction has gone up uh, over the years. And then, obviously, this all comes back against the background of uh, Scott Benton, Tory MP who had the whip the drawn after he uh, accidentally told some Times journalists uh, posing as being from a, a gambling firm that he could leak information about exactly this consultation. Yeah, it's it's very typical of, of this particular government that um, they have consultations and white papers and boards in, in lieu of actually doing anything about it to get them out of doing anything about it, should I say. And I think in in years to come, we'll be looking back at this moment in the same way that we look back on when smoking ads were first taken away from magazines and sports sponsorship. Um, and it feels at the moment like a massive missed opportunity because they could push it through. They could push through something quite heavy and quite sort of all-encompassing. At the moment, it just seems a bit a bit weak-willed. And actually, given, you know, Rishi Sunak is not Liz Truss and the sort of freedom fighting, <laughs> everyone do what they like uh, uh, thing, trying to suggest that there is a balance between everyone should be able to do what they want but we want to protect people. If we know that it is harming people, and we intervene, you know, if we intervene in other ways on health, and whether it's smoking or food or whatever, um, it, it seems like they don't need any more information about the scale of the problem, Manvin. I suppose, yeah, it's, it, it just seems... Yeah. It seems weird that uh, no, she says there are blind spots in the system, which everyone knows about, basically. But, um, yeah, it's going to take... A- no, you're right. I mean, I think it's really interesting. You know, there will be people in, in the party, you're right, sort of, you know, the, the libertarians, I suppose, might come out against it. But, you know, I, I'm I, I'm sure it's too early in the day to talk about Isaiah Berlin. But, like, you know, there are different versions of how you would define liberty. If you've got people, apparently one person a day kills themselves because they can't control their gambling habit. That's not really free choice as we know it. You know, liberty is about being able to make up your mind about things. It's about having the choice. And for a lot of people in this country, when it comes to gambling, it just isn't a choice, clearly. So, you know, that is an argument for government to intervene. Uh, and that's why it's been sort of, it's been so serious. But, you know, as, as you mentioned earlier, I think a lot of people, when they see the same policy coming back and the same consultations coming back and not enough being done, there will just be a suspicion that this is because of, you know, what the Scott Benton case showed, where it's not just sort of people arguing about liberty and, and rights, because I think most people would acknowledge people are dying. That's 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 bad enough. But, you know, ha- ha- we know that the gambling industry has a huge lobbying um, operation in Westminster. We know a lot of MPs get taken out on hospitality trips. They get taken to the races in boxes, you know, and, and we know that they're also sort of often getting consultation fees, you know, that and the Scott Benton case sort of showed very clearly how open they are to being, you know, he was willing to show people exactly what's in the bill before it sort of was, was going to be published. I mean, that's terrifying. But, you know, he was very open to clearly... It wasn't unusual for him to be approached by the gambling industry from from what he said to the reporters from the Times who who had that meeting with him. And I just think that's really alarming. And every time you get sort of a slightly watered down version of what people think should be happening, you know, there's always going to be a suspicion that that's why. And I think it's the first time I've ever agreed with Ian Duncan Smith, who yes, has, uh, <laughs> who's come out and said, 
consultations are a cop out, um, which it completely is. And as I said, it goes back to that smoking um, ad ban again. So many people looking back on it in the 70s in the UK and America and America now with the NRA were completely in the pockets of big tobacco and, and the gun lobbies and all the lobbies and everything that was going on. So it does make you so suspicious of why this is getting watered down and really just dragged around. It's it's very strange. And actually, in the detail of it, the Times uh, has been told that plans to ban VIP schemes offering hospitality and bonuses, not not to politicians, which some people might think is bad enough, but to those who build up significant losses, that the plans to clamp down on that have been dropped, which is basically these gambling companies, when they see people running up big losses, they then say, oh, do you want to come to the races? Or do you want to do this? Or we'll give you a bonus just to keep them hooked in. So even when people get themselves into a problem and might think... This is a way to step away. They hooked them in, but apparently they've dropped that. They've also dropped proposals to ban advertising targeting vulnerable customers. And you just think, wow! If you 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 can take a libertarian line and say, fine, people can do what they like, but you can't directly target vulnerable people. You'd have thought. Yeah, you think there's no such thing as a Bond villain rubbing their hands together and going, "Wah!" But it does sound everything you just said does sound like that. Just completely preying on the vulnerable, especially when so many people are struggling at the moment and looking for a way to get a bit more money um, in their lives. Um, it's it's such a cynical and, and almost evil thing to do. Yeah, it's playing on addiction. And, you know, in writing The Times today, you know, um, Lucy Fraser does say, quite rightly, that this does often end up hitting people in, in yeah, yeah. You know, difficult communities, people who really need the help, who sort of see this as an escape route, and then it just makes things even worse. And I think, you know, we're allowing the vulnerable to be to be targeted. And I just think it's bizarre. You know, you're right, the VIP schemes, just they are literally playing on an addiction. They're manipulating people into doing what's even worse for them. And I can't believe, I can't believe they haven't been um, struck off. I can't believe they haven't you know, they'll carry on, whatever happens yeah. with this bill. The interesting counterpoint of this, Claude's been in touch with texting, having gambled for 60 years, uh, uh, I've never been addicted. Over the years, I've probably been a loser, but I've enjoyed the thrill enjoyment of the sport and betting. My philosophy has been that of the American jockey, Eddie Acaro, bet with your head, not over it. It's a matter of self-control. No amount of legislation or nanny state mentality is going to prevent addicts. Which is, a, which is I suppose, is a counter view, but because some people manage to bet without getting into trouble doesn't mean that it is you know in the same way that some people could smoke one evening and then not but also i think it's interesting that he's been doing it for so long and i think um i think betting was very different in the past That's and true. i imagine yeah, yeah, he's yeah, still yeah. betting in, yeah. the, in the same way as he was decades ago whereas i think now with it being online it's so much more compelling you know it's it's like social media where you know things just become an addiction you're being shown things so quickly and it's and in, in the palm, palm of your hand yeah right there you can't and walk like, out of the bookies terrifying. that's the thing because the mm. the bookies or the casino is always in your pocket well we'll see yeah. later on because those those the plan details of those plans are being unveiled a bit later on uh, matt let's turn to your uh, your special subject of music uh-huh. Uh, and uh, the Canadian singer Grimes has encouraged people to, to clone her voice so she can earn royalties from AI songs. Let's, take, let's just take a listen to her. Well, addiction is terrible. Uh, she's uh, Elon Musk's ex. Uh, she tweeted saying, I'll split 50% royalties on any successful AI-generated song that uses my voice. Same deal as I would with any artist I collab with. Feel free to use my voice without penalty. I have no label and no legal bindings. The thing I thought was slightly odd about this, um, 
Matt, was you don't need her, do you, if you're going to use AI? Or do you? It's at a bit of a crossroads at the moment um, because you still essentially need samples of the artist in order to generate something that sounds like Grimes. And then you also need the musical talent in order to create a backing track, you know, an original song, a verse, chorus, verse, middle eight song. The computer doesn't quite come up with a fully realised song yet um and then people are drawn to a certain voice i mean look at adele look at harry styles there are voices on the radio that you can identify straight away and people want that that's what people buy into and also harry styles trousers as well but that's another matter (laughs) um but people want you know that's the product people want and they want that sound so you do still at this point need the artist and Matt, we've, we've spoken before about the um, the plagiarism story and uh, Ed Sheeran's in court right now for, for mm. over-plagiarism. It, it feels to me like if you go down the AI route, particularly when you start write, getting AI to write the backing track, you're going to feed in all music to spit out in the other in the other end. But don't, aren't you just baking in, essentially, plagiarism? Well, it's the same discussion we had the other day, isn't yeah. it? I mean, how, how much can you do with... 12 notes, how much can you do with the verse, chorus, verse structure? Um, plagiarism is historically baked in to pop music. Yeah. It's postmodernism in its purest <laughs> form, I guess. And so, what? yeah, what exactly can you do? And I feel we're at the point now, and the music industry is at the point now, because Universal Music Group got um, a lot of this stuff taken down. The Drake and Weekend AI song the other day, they got yeah. it taken down legally, but they found a loophole because it used a sample. That's how they got it taken down. It wasn't anything to do with the AI. And we're at the point now where the record industry in the early noughties have this massive panic about illegal downloading and streaming, oh, and they yeah. completely went the wrong way about it and found themselves on the back foot, and it took them, it took them about 10 years to recover and start making money out of streaming. And I feel that we're at that point now with AI. What do you think, Manfred? Are you looking forward to being replaced by an AI bot? <laughs> I mean, I would love that. Um, one of the things <laughs> I think Grimes actually says is that she sort of thinks this is going to lead to the world where you no longer have to work, where, you know, as, a, as an an artist, she won't have to work because people will be generating AI versions of her, I suppose, to do it. And she'll just sort of take the profits. I just, I, I think, obviously, we're not quite there yet. But also, I don't think the law has caught up with this. You know, at the moment, the, the hold up is about whether it's legal for them to take bits for sampling. But basically, what you're talking about is, do you have a copyright to your own voice? Can anybody steal it and make it say whatever you want they want it to? Which is a terrifying concept but that's exactly what's happening and i think she's trying to find the good side of that where if you can work out a copyright system you can claim a bit of the profit but you know as people have said to her the moment somebody puts up a song singing lyrics in your voice that you don't approve of uh, or you know that is really damaging you have no control at the moment you know that there is no legal route around this and you know there's already sort of ai um which is really interesting where you can tell it to paint you know to do a picture in the style of various artists and most of those artists are dead so nobody's sort of screaming about exactly the same thing you know sort of copyright effectively but you know there's you suddenly start to see there is this whole world emerging where a lot of this stuff is it's you know we just we haven't worked out a system around it yeah and the ai is so good it's so good at replicating it that um you know we're going to have to work out whether we think that's okay have you heard the um i ai sys album that's been floating yes, around yeah, social yeah, media. Yeah, 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 yeah. The, uh, yes, the Oasis. Uh, do you two both like your neighbours? 
Well, I live in a part of the country where I'm surrounded by Tory voters, so I don't trust them. I mean, <laughs> liking is, is another matter entirely, but I, def- I don't trust their judgment. You wouldn't, you wouldn't trust them with your lawnmower. What about you, Mavi? No. Yes, I do. Um, I think I think the pandemic made a big difference because you suddenly saw so much more of them. Um, you know, people you wouldn't normally see because you'd be out at work yeah. or whatever, suddenly you sort of see them coming and going much more and you become much more aware of each other, um, which has been really nice. I well, think. it turns out that the nation's more like Manveen than it is like Matthew, uh, Matt Charlton. <laughs> uh, there's a new survey out. Uh, uh, Bobby Duffy is Professor of Public Policy and Director at the Policy Institute at, the King, at King's College London who's done the research. Hi, Bobby. Hey, man. So, uh, take us through it. We trust our neighbours more than most other countries. That's right. We're really near the top. Uh, top four out of uh, about 25 countries, uh, 84% of people saying they trust people in their neighbourhood. And, and more than that, it's increased. Uh, you go back to the early 2000s, we've gone, uh, we've gone up, uh, where other countries like the US have actually gone down in their levels of trust um, in uh, their neighbours. And then... We also asked about who people wanted as neighbours and, and we're also incredibly more tolerant about who we think of as acceptable uh, neighbours where we've gone from, it, it's quite incredible to think that like in the early 90s, three in 10 people said they didn't want gay people as neighbours and that's down to a real incredibly low proportion of people now, like four or 5% of people. So we've seen uh, increased trust, but also increased tolerance for difference among our neighbours. And that is a really important thing about how we live our lives, quality of life in local areas. And importantly, in times of crisis like pandemics, where you feel trust and connection uh, to people in uh, your neighbourhood. So it's a, it's a real asset for the country. Although it's interesting the point you, that Manveen was making, that because of the pandemic, and we all went through that, we get, got to know our neighbours. But that was true around the world. Everyone went through the same, you know, the same pandemic and you'd have thought might have had the same thing. So why is it you think that we've gone up when other countries haven't? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I think we've got a good basis of tolerance and uh, of difference and a general social connection and cohesion. I think a lot of the, the discussion that we've had, for example, around immigration and the uh, extent to which the country can cope with uh, new people coming in, we actually got quite a lot of social capital as a nation and quite open. Uh, so that that is, and it comes, it's come across in a whole series of research studies that we've released around this uh, bigger programme that we are pretty yeah. comfortable. And that that's like, that is a proper asset for social connections for the economy uh, for politics overall the, the overall theme of what we've put out is that actually britain's pretty comfortable with itself in many ways but the thing that we're less comfortable with is whether our political and other institutions are delivering for us well it's fascinating stuff bobby thank you for that bobby duffy there from uh, the uh, king's college london uh, the policy institute at king's college london uh, just finally then uh, matt you don't like your neighbors but what about if they invited you around for baked beans on toast i'd like them even less I wouldn't go. I wouldn't go at all. I, I was, I was this, this, this story. I mean, so this story is that apparently yeah. beans on toast have been unfairly demonised and can be part of a healthy diet. Say nutritionists. Our cook at primary school was so bad that she put me off several foodstuffs until I was in my twenties. This included fish fingers, mashed potato, lasagna. Beans was one of these, and it's a mark of how bad she was that she left the same year as me, and her going away present was a microwave. <laughs> <laughs> Manveen, are you a fan of beans on toast? I'm not a massive fan, oh. but um, I mean, this is this is so this is it, it's a really interesting story in, in the paper about processed foods. And I mean, the truth is, if I do, you know, I do occasionally have beans on toast. But if I if I didn't <sighs> have beans 
in that way. I just don't, I don't cook with them. I don't cook with sort of that, you know, is it haricot beans? I'm not even sure what goes into them, but um, it's just evil. something that wouldn't evil be, goes into evil them. goes into them. Yeah. It wouldn't be something that's part of my diet. Matt Charles and Manvin Brown are there. And of course, you can read the stories we're discussing. Just hit the links in the podcast description and you can catch Manvin on the Stories of Our Times podcast, wherever you get your podcast from, which you know, because you're listening to a podcast. Coming up, it's the Times Radio Focus Group. 1-size-fits-all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Yes, every month here on Times Radio, we convene a focus group of voters to assess what is going on and what do normal people think about what's happening in politics. And as ever, we are joined by James Johnson from General Partners, former number 10 pollster uh, and uh, focus group extraordinaire. James, we should start with the uh, legal requirements. What is a focus group and how is it different to a poll? Yes, so a poll is designed to get the, you know, the real sort of read of what the public think. 20% think this, 30% think that. A focus group is not intended to sum up the representative views of an audience. It's there to dig deeper. It's a smaller group, usually just between six to eight people. And it's there to dig beneath the polls. What's powering them? Are things a little, perhaps a little softer than they appear amongst these voters? How do they talk about the politicians? Politicians use them a lot to work those kind of questions out. And obviously it allows us to get under the skin of the voters as well. Now, and usually we quite often do sort of Labour, Tory, swing voters, but slightly different this week. We thought we'd assess what's going on in Scotland. So who was in the group for this month's focus group. Yes, we are going north of the border, we're in Scotland, and we talked to people who voted SNP in 2019, who are now undecided about how they would vote. So obviously lots going on in Scotland, this is the sort of read of them, and they came from across Scotland. So a couple from Edinburgh, a couple from Glasgow, a couple from other places around around the country. So go on, let's dive straight in, because the SNP have had an interesting time of late. Uh, so let's start with asking these uh, SNP undecided voters, how is the Scottish government doing? I think we're still in a bit of a transition period. I think it's pretty unstable at the moment. Yeah, I think the perception is definitely worse than the reality. Um, I think the Scottish government does okay when benchmarked against other governments, particularly the devolved nations in the, the United Kingdom. Services are, are still the same as they were six months ago, whether that's good or bad. I would say they're ticking over, you know, doing the basics, doing what they need to do. I think they're doing okay. I think myself that they're doing okay. People are feeling disheartened and whether rightly or wrongly, yeah, there's a lot of mudslinging. I feel they're a wee bit unstable, maybe just staying okay. 
because at one time I felt right up there with them and now I feel, I just don't know how I feel about them anymore. I think considering they're fighting against the forces of Sauron and Saruman, I think they're, they're doing pretty well. There is always a bias within the media up here, that's a fact. So, you know, considering what's been thrown at them, they do still seem to be just ploughing ahead. You can't help but watch the media and watch the news and think, oh, maybe the support I've had for this has been, you know, misplaced. And then I just think it's £600,000. It's obviously need to investigate it and whatever, but the more I rationalise it, the more I realise it's a big show. You can tell that they think this is an opportunity to dismantle independence through dismantling the SNP. It is kind acute compared to, you know, accusations that are going on around Westminster and whatever. However, I just feel our government had potentially had more faith that they were more transparent than Westminster as such. And I think now that all this has all been exposed, you do start to lose faith. What's really interesting about that is people might have thought, given that it's been going on, arrests, money, the camper van, all of these things swirling around, you might have expected SNP voters to become a bit disheartened. And actually, it might be the first time we've ever had a mention of Sowon in the uh, in, a, in a focus group. It's the media's fault, it's somebody else's fault, it's all a conspiracy, £600,000, a lot of money, but not enough for me to to question my support. And they, they say they're undecided. So their waivers... But they're trying to still keep the faith. Yeah, I think that's right. They've seen their confidence tested perhaps a little bit, and you could see that some people there were saying unstable. I think they all thought that relative to what had come before, this was worse. But as you say, they are still trying to keep that connection to the SNP. Um, and they view the financial situation in the uh, Scottish National Party and the investigation that's underway they sort of see that as a bit separate to their view of the SNP. That sort of seems to be something else that's happening separate. And the new under the new leadership, they're sort of judging the SNP slightly differently. It's worth saying, you know, we always ask that question to the UK, to the England yeah. audience. How do you think the government's doing at the moment? On the Scottish government, there's absolutely no doubt that these SNP waverers are quite a lot more positive about the Scottish government than the Tory waverers are about the UK government. It's interesting that. And willing to give the benefit of the doubt. And a couple of years ago, we had lots of people giving Boris Johnson the benefit of the doubt when the... when Twitter suggested they were cross yeah. about it. And, and just to be clear, Sauron and Saruman there were the UK government and NATO um, to this chap. So there's a lot of a sense of outside forces yeah. um, that are trying to sort of undermine Scottish independence and undermine the SNP in Scotland. Okay, but let's um, let's uh, find out what they think about the new guy then. Humza Yousaf, whatever the opposite of a honeymoon is uh, since he became SNP leader. So let's see what happened when you asked the group to summarise their feelings about Humza Yousaf transparent. He's always stood and answered questions, whether they're uncomfortable or not. He's new, he's fresh, he's focused, he's given us a clear plan. Young, honest, ambitious, clear-minded. I think he'll stand up for us. I think he's he's not frightened. He's, he's faced everything head on. Young, focused, confident. Passive and composed. Passive because felt like this situation could have been dealt with better. Unremarkable, but not as bad as people make out. I really want him to do well. I think we've been spoiled by Nicholas Sturgeon, who is a remarkable person. Any sort of leadership knowledge he's had, he's not exactly excelled at it. When thinking about voting for the SNP, for me, it was more about Nicholas Sturgeon rather than the full party. Well, he might attract the voters that Nicholas Sturgeon seemed to turn off. You know, you go into the pub and people either love Nicholas Sturgeon or hate him. I don't think he has the same response or impact. James, quite a mixed bag there. Some Lots of young uh, and fresh, and, you know, that's probably quite a, a positive thing. He, he's happy to answer questions. I mean, most of the questions have been, do you think the SNP is a criminal operation? And he said, no. 
But then it's really interesting. Some saying, well, he's not as good as Nicholas Sturgeon, he might struggle. And others saying, well, actually, he might attract some people who were turned off by Nicholas Sturgeon. And let's not forget, Nicholas Sturgeon was getting 50% in the polls. Yeah, now, this is one of those really interesting features where focus groups reveal something going on in the psychology of how people talk about things. So they started actually pretty positive, and they said, you know, focused, all the words you heard there that were quite positive. The longer the conversation went on, they actually started to go, well, that's my hope. Uh, I hope the reality lives up to that. And there were real doubts underneath the surface. So they want to sort of keep that faith with the SNP. They want to support him. But there are those lingering doubts. And actually that sort of veneer of hope that we first saw did crumble away quite quickly once they thought about it a bit more, which is not the best omen. It was interesting the group couldn't really see Hamza Yousaf without seeing him through the prism of Nicola Sturgeon. It was partly because she was there for so long. So let's find out what this group of SNP swing voters had to say when you asked them to sum up Nicola Sturgeon in a word. Likeable. Colossal. Strong. Formidable. Capable. Strong. Formidable. Passionate. Very passionate. Formidable, colossal. I don't think we've ever had a colossal on the. Well, this is a, a focus group of firsts. It, it is just Titan status. Yeah. And I think that is fair to say that's how they viewed her. One lady said that when she heard that Nicola Sturgeon resigned, she cried. Um, this is a group that has a real affinity with Sturgeon. And actually, this is a group where her brand has not been damaged by the recent uh, situation. Um, and they obviously still feel a lot of like for her and are comparing what's coming next and what's there now. Uh, in a slightly more negative light compared to how they viewed her. You asked them also to sum up Alex Salmond, obviously Nicola Sturgeon's predecessor, in one word. Experienced. Very experienced, very experienced. Yesterday's man. Sleazy. Creepy. Cunning. Articulate. Pioneer. Been quite, a, quite a mixed bag. Uh, and, a ge- and a gender split. And a gender split. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, see, the, the other thing that is noticeable is a few of them are using the same words. I suppose that's some... That's Can that happen a bit in focus groups? So people start either because they're unimaginative or they're easily led, they end up repeating what other people are saying. Yeah, so what we often get them to do is to write down their view first. Yeah. And uh, obviously a lot of the groups that we do on Times Radio, we do over Zoom. So uh, you can't necessarily Police. look over their shoulders <laughs> and make sure they're reading it out. But that does help control it a little bit. But yeah, there were there were similar words. And I think, you know, Sam, Alex Salmon clearly has that pioneer status, as somebody said, but there are also concerns about, well, his brand has been harmed by events that have happened since he stopped becoming leader. Yeah. All signs are that so far that's not happened for Nicola Sturgeon and she may well, if she decides to continue to have a public voice, that may well be influential in the future of the SNP. And it's interesting because they're, they're clearly very enthusiastic still about the SNP and Nicola Sturgeon. But these are people we identified through the Market Research Group as being undecided. It wasn't what we said, let's go out and find some die-hard SNP, I will vote SNP, independence, come what may. They're sort of waverers, but I mean, if these are the waverers, the, the hardcore must be still completely convinced that the SNP is the bee's knees. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's a, a fair assumption. I mean, look, in some of the, the polling certainly shows in Scotland that uh, Humza Yousaf has not had a great start. Um, they tend to view him as weak rather than strong voters as a whole in Scotland. Mm. Um, but often that is fuelled by Labour Conservative voters who actually used to have a quite a positive view of Sturgeon despite everything, um, or, or despite her views on independence. Um, and uh, the SNP voters are staying broadly loyal. But there's no doubt that, uh, yeah, this waiver group is going to be very important in the future. You've, made, you've used the I word, independence. So let's find out what this group, remember, SNP voters, they voted as SNP in 2019, told the market researchers they were now undecided. You asked them about the prospect of, a, of another independence referendum and when they thought it should be held. I think they should leave it for a wee while. I still think it's the way 
forward just I'm not sure of the time scale just because of the changes they know so maybe a, a, a couple of years maybe yes, I, do, I do still want independence but like that I think it should be left for a wee while to see how SNP get on yeah I think the dust needs to settle and all this a wee bit and people are just feeling a bit jaded I would probably have it in a couple of years. Yeah, I mean, just after the general election, you know, one of Hamza's main points he's trying to get across is independence. So, you know, as long as they, they do well and they keep the majority of their seats, then it's a, a good time to capitalise on it. Financially, we're too unstable at the moment. I think we've got to, you know, measure over the next year his progress and how he does deliver. I'd be careful about diving in too quickly because... I think there's a long way to go. I'd include that in the manifesto for the, the next election and do it in two years. I don't I don't think it's actually feasible to do it any sooner. For example, right now he calls a referendum next year. It's just impossible to so have an election and a referendum. Do it in two years. It sounds a bit like me putting off a job at home, Joe. It, potentially, um, <laughs> look. I think I think this is so. This is so. I've been doing focus groups in Scotland since 2016, um, including the number ten at that time. I used to get dispatched to Scotland quite often to see how James the go find out what they're saying. Exactly, and then I'd turn up with my accent and uh, in a Glaswegian front room, and uh, you know they'd be like, "Who is this? Who is this jumped up uh, individual?" Um, no, uh, and the common refrain then was from these kind of voters, SNP waverers, was uh, "Let's give it two years." And then when I went back in 2018, they'd say, let's give it two years. And then the pandemic came along and they said, let's give it two years. And now again, in 23, they're saying, let's give it another two years. So this is something that we perhaps shouldn't necessarily hold them to. And I think this encapsulates, well, it's the nuance of this audience. This may be where they're different from that hardcore SNP audience. These guys are supportive of independence, supportive of the SNP, but they do not want a referendum yet. And there's a variety of reasons for that. Distraction, focus on domestic issues, focus on the economy, um, practicalities, wait for a general election. But this is not uh, an audience that is really rapidly hoping for a referendum. And this is an audience that perhaps Hamza Yousaf needs to be really careful about. Because if he's pushing for a referendum now, which you know he's said and demanded in his meeting with Rishi Sunak, uh, he may well be isolating himself from some of these voters. And, and I think there is a bigger risk for the SNP from actually the referendum issue than there is from the financial investigation issue. If you seem to be pushing it too much, that you end up losing people. Because this means a lot more to them and this affects their lives a lot more. And how much of that, let's do it in two years, without wanting to put words in the mouths particularly of the people on this group, is people who just don't think it's going to happen. They sort of quite like the idea of independence, maybe in an ideal world. They just don't think it's going to happen. You don't want to voice that out loud because you've been banging on about it for so long. So you just say, not now, when what you really mean is, I just know this isn't... It's like me saying I might join a gym in two years. I know that's not going to happen, but I don't want to give up upon the idea that I might do at some point. Yeah, God, gyms and household chores. <laughs> back, you're, uh, I know, there's a lot more insight to this, yeah, it's my mindset. <laughs> Look, I think, I, think you're, I, think, I think that's right, and I think uh, that, was, that was true for a couple of them, and I think that uh, it's, a, it's a sort of easy thing to say. When we poll the issue, it actually comes out quite similar to this, where that's a lot of people say, you know, two years rather than sort of, you know, five or ten or yeah. never. Um, so I think that we're getting a bit of, uh, I think that two years is 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 a, is a kind of now is not the time, and I think that continues actually for for quite some time into the future unless things dramatically change. And the important thing to know about independence is that it, support for it in Scotland goes up and down depending on their view of how competent the Scottish government is and the SNP is. So if you think back to the middle of 2020, when independence was soaring in the polls, I think it was up to 60% at one point, that was when Nicola Sturgeon was seen as handling the COVID pandemic really well, especially in contrast to Boris Johnson in, in, down in England and across the UK. 
that is very clearly now perhaps starting to feed into their views of independence now that they're starting to waver on the competence of the Scottish government now. So that's the key metric to watch. They both feed into each other. Yeah, yeah. This is Matt Chorley on Times Radio, bringing you our regular monthly focus group. James Johnson from JL Partners, former number 10 pollster, is with us. Uh, this month we are speaking to SNP voters. They backed the SNP in 2019. They're now undecided. James, let's turn our attention now to the opposition, if you like. Let's look at the Scottish party leaders first of all. This is what the group had to say about Douglas Ross, the Conservative leader in Scotland. Red card, red card. Unimpressionable. Small man, opportunistic. Uh, non-existent. Stick to refereeing because he is non-existent. He's just, he's another one. It just likes to hear the sound of his own voice. Lackluster. Snide. Evil. He's a bit pantomime, bit melodramatic. In fairness to him, I believe he is a sincere Conservative. I can't say that about Anasarwa. I don't think Anasarwa sincerely believes in the things that he says. As a leader, I don't have any faith at all. OK, well, as I've introduced Anasarwa into the conversation, let's also hear what the group had to say about the Scottish Labour leader, Anasarwa. Dentist? I think that was his job before he was a politician, but that's the first thing that comes into my mind. I don't like him at all. It's just SNP this, SNP that. He's just, oh, he's just, I just don't like Scrapper. Unlikable. Insincere. Not likable. A loser. Fraud. I just think he's false. He just opposes the SNP. I have no idea what his actual ideas are. But apart from that, they love them both. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I mean, they're very similar, I suppose. The, the 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 views of them, they seem to be interchangeable. They're not particularly more pro or anti um, the other. Yeah, you got a sense that any politician that wasn't supportive of independence would have got a similar yeah. verdict from these voters, which is completely fair, right? You know, that that's their that's their sort of key key thing that they're looking for um, in the long term or medium term, at least. You wouldn't expect if you were Douglas Ross to do well with this group. Um, uh, he's conservative. Um, yeah. This group tends to be quite anti-conservative. Uh, evil, I think you heard there, yeah. um, uh, which is pretty harsh. Anasawa, you know, equally pretty harsh. Um, you know, uh, they, they, they didn't fall in love with him. I think this is the group in a general election where you're not really thinking they're necessarily going to go vote Labour or vote Conservative. So I think it's a huge surprise. But it is a group who perhaps might not turn out if they didn't feel really energised. So let's find out what they actually think about the Westminster leaders then. Uh, let's kick off with what the group of SNP votes from 2019 have now and decided this is what they thought about Rishi Sunak. Rich. Very privileged. Elitist. Elitist as well. Rich. He's a money snake. Privileged. I don't think he's relatable. They're not necessarily understanding how people's lives are, their struggles. As he's come in, you know, he's been very proactive on different fronts, but I think he's out of touch. You know, initially I thought he was an all right guy and he was coming out with certain sound bites. It sounded like he wanted to help. But then when push came to shove, he just was out of touch with what the majority of people are dealing with. It's just one big way of skimming money from the the people to to get it into their pockets and he's doing a great job of that. He's clever, you know, he's better than certainly better than what there was there before, but you know, you can see quite clearly that it's all just about money for him. Rishi Sunak, like it or lump it, is good at what he does. So fair play, same way Thatcher was good at what she did. Douglas Ross is incompetent and he's like a lackey to his Westminster kind of masters and I think that's why he's more detestable. I just think he's clever at what he does and good at what he does. The only thing is he's off for the money. Wow. I mean, the rich thing really, you know, gets cut through. And it's interesting whether the SNP have just landed that message better than 
than actually Labour and Keir Starmer uh, have managed. Before we, we come on to that, let's just hear actually, for the sake of completeness, this is what the group had to say about Labour leader Keir Starmer. Spineless. Doesn't get his point across enough. Bland. Cowardly. Bogus. <laughs> Meh. <laughs> Bogus mental. Bland. Shouldn't it be a politician? He's just because he is bland. Kind of just sums up Labour, really. There's there's not that much of a fight against the Tories. I just always felt like he was in the background gibbering on, but nothing that actually made sense or meant anything. Wish washy for me. Just not doing enough, basically, to to make people listen. I think he's passive. I think he had arguably the best chance of, of any Labour leader with the mistakes that Boris Johnson was making and the Tory party have made over the last couple of years and he smashed the ball over the bar from two yards. Some of the things he says about Scotland are derogatory. He's out of touch with Scottish politics, Scottish people. He seems like he would be terrible for, for Scotland and most probably England as well. What worries me is he changes his mind and that's why I keep bogus because... You know, he's, he'll say something and then he'll change it. So, James, Keir Starmer, if he wants to become Prime Minister, certainly with a majority government, needs to win in Scotland. What's striking is they've got much stronger views about Keir Starmer than lots of the swing voters in England that we normally have on the focus group. We say, I don't know much about him. He seems a bit wet or whatever. This is strong views. They're just not very complimentary. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. And I think what you see here for both party leaders is almost the worst views of them in England, sort of amplified and yeah, taken yeah. on board by by these people who obviously don't look much like either of them. But it is interesting, the view of Keir Starmer is not just a shrug, it is actually very consciously negative. And um, the big question is, is what does that do to mm. these kind of voters in a Scottish general election? Because if they think that a Labour government is on the cards, and actually they're not that happy with that, does, you know, what does that do to their vote? And, yeah, I don't, yeah. and I don't know the answer to that question yet. You know, does that mean that they're more likely to turn out and actually vote SNP because they don't necessarily want that to happen? Um, does it dampen the attempt of Labour to turn it into a kick the Tories out election? Yeah, get the Tories Possibly. out. Possibly. So, stops being a, a strong rallying call if people really don't like Keir Starmer. Let's hear now what happened when you asked them to specifically choose. If you had to choose between Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer, this is what the group said. Rishi. Uh, he, he steadied the boat with everything that happened with Liz and, and Boris prior to that. Rishi, because I think the other one would be tragic. He's just no boat Scotland's back at all. I, I would actually say Keir Starmer, just because whether we agree or disagree, he does represent a change. I would say Rishi. I, do, I think he's the best person to lead. I think I've got to say Keir, just to get them out and I for a change. I'd say Rishi, just because... I do slightly like him a wee bit more, no particular reason, because I think, to be honest, most of them are all the same. I would say Rishi, he's a snake, but we know he's a snake. Keir's pretending not to be a snake. Yeah, I would say Rishi, because you, you know what you're dealing with, and it's an easy opposition to have, you know, because they're so colourfully against the things that, that we kind of want. So I think Labour will win, but I don't think we'll have this big thumping majority that the probably people thought they would have had six months ago. So I made that about 6-2 in favour of Rishi Sunak. I mean, some letting it slip that actually it's because essentially having an evil, nasty, out-of-touch Tory Prime Minister in Westminster is not bad if what you're aiming for is independence. Yeah. But yeah. as also just saying they think he'd just be better. Yeah, there was a lot of genuine thoughts in there. I mean, genuinely shocking. I mean, not shocking, but surprising. That so is not what... 
you would have expected, and certainly some of the commentary around what's happening in Scotland and how this is a huge moment for Keir Starmer, he's going to come back and Labour are coming back. Yeah. This is this is our defence of doing these focus groups, right, Matt? Yeah, yeah. You know, you, voters are not, they don't subscribe, prescribe to the rules that, you know, yeah. we sometimes set for them. They, you know, these are SNP voters, they're undecided, they're very loyal to Nicola Sturgeon, yet they don't really want a referendum and they prefer Rishi Sunak to Keir Starmer as PM but they also think there's a media conspiracy against them. You know, this, this is a nuanced way of looking at the world from these, from these people, and I think that reflects some of what we have seen in the other focus groups in England. Um, we always get accused of, you know, saying, oh, everyone loves Rishi Sunak compared to Keir Starmer, um, and, you know, oh, that doesn't reflect the polls. But actually, amongst these swing groups, yeah. in Scotland as well as England there is this sense that actually maybe Rishi Sunak might make the better Prime Minister, and that's going to be really interesting for what that means to the dynamics in a general election. And that's where it, better than you know, versus time for change. That it, it, Who can frame the election uh, best? That's, that's, that's going to be the choice in Scotland as well as everywhere else. Yeah, and if you're a Conservative Party strategist, either in Westminster or in Scotland, when Boris Johnson was leader, they were brutal on Boris. And I think we did one, um, I can't remember exactly, mid-2021, I yeah, think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they were SNP voters who didn't want a referendum. Yeah, yeah. and it was, they were really savage on Boris. And they were yeah. saying, you know, he was, it was clear that they were pushing him to independence, uh, pushing them to independence, and very clear that it was, they were pushing them to SNP. You could almost see a world where some of those might even have lent a vote to stop Boris. They hated him that much. I don't think hate is too strong a word yeah. there for this audience. Um, with Rishi Sunak, that has gone. And like I say, I don't think we can say for sure what that means right now, but it certainly means that there is less of that mobilisation to kick the Tories out, which you might have seen had Boris Johnson gone into another election for the, for the Conservatives. Yeah, somebody in number 10 just needs to draw up a post of better the snake you know. <laughs> <laughs> wow, is that com- that's a campaign line if I've ever heard one. But isn't, isn't I think that, that, that quote, I think, tells you a lot about how people perhaps potentially view Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer in England as well. You know, there is this sense that at least with Rishi Sunak, you know what you're getting. Yeah. With Keir Starmer, they still don't know what it is. And actually, that used to just get a shrug and a, oh, we don't know what we think of Keir Starmer. It's now, we don't know what he thinks and we really don't like that. And yeah. if Starmer can't or, turn that around... Uh, I mean, then you start throwing into a bit of, he's changed his position on whether it's the gender question or he, you know, nationalisation or things that you thought you knew about him turn out that that's not what he's about either. That sort of starts feeding into it as well. Right, just finally then, James, let's start thinking about the festivities of next weekend. Uh, the coronation is coming. SNP supporters tend to be more enthusiastic than other voters about not having a, uh, a monarchy, although SNP leadership always said they'd like to keep the, keep the monarchy even in the event of independence. So this is what happened when you asked them uh, what they thought about the coronation. Positive and excited. The only good thing out of it is the, the day off on, on Monday. I won't be watching it or anything like that. I'll be just enjoying my sleeping. I'm so negative about it. 50 million, 8 million for his photograph to ground councils. That's the bit that really pees me off. Don't think there's a place for it. Biggest waste of money. There is the other side that my kids will be able to remember the history. It is fun to see that kind of stuff in it. Because you do think back to like Richard II and Richard I and all these old kings, they would have had a coronation. So you're kind of seeing a process that's happened for hundreds and hundreds of years, which is interesting to me. It just feels a little absurd that we have kings and queens and stuff. I don't like the element of it having it rammed down our throats, whether it's in the media, whether it's on Facebook or social media, and there's no dissent allowed in the media. It's one voice all speaking at you with the same gushing praise, and there's no no one's allowed to have an opinion other than that. 
So it's interesting this, James. Humza Yousaf is going to the coronation and not going to a, a pro-independence rally. Uh, maybe you should sit at the back and try not to get caught on the cameras. Yeah, although there was some interesting nuance yeah, there yeah. as well. You know, a couple of subpuzzles have been excited and actually a few sort of grudgingly said, oh, I quite like the history of it, even if yeah, I think yeah. it's all a bit, all a bit mad. Um, and obviously some people just enjoy the day off too. Uh, yeah. I think that this shows you that actually, you know, despite everything else we know about these voters... Um, and as you say, despite that tendency for the SNP voters to be a more anti-monarchy, um, actually, I don't think they're going to take a particularily strong view. Yeah. If Himsey's use have turned up, they probably wouldn't have taken a particularly strong view if he hadn't have turned up either. Well, that's all we've got time for on today's episode of the podcast. Don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes and subscribe to The Times. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash times box. But now for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.